I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. A rested child is a happy child. Sleep Tight Stories is a weekly podcast that brings comfort and joy to families worldwide with calming bedtime stories. The stories are relevant to children and spark wonder without overstimulation, so they can fall asleep and stay asleep. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a bedtime routine you'll miss when they're grown, Sleep Tight Stories. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. The Koala Moon podcast has revolutionized over 20 million bedtimes with parents like you calling it life-changing and the perfect nighttime routine. With original kids' bedtime stories and cozy sleep meditations, every episode has been specially designed to make bedtimes a dream. Listen to Koala Moon on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. So today, I thought we'd bring you a sort of bonus episode. It's my old interview from last year with Michael Pollan. I did it back then because he had just written a new book called This Is Your Mind on Plants. But, you know, last week, Netflix released this spectacular documentary based upon Michael's previous book called How to Change Your Mind, all about psychedelics research and its medical value. So in honor of that coming out, I thought, why not bring back that old episode? If you haven't listened to it before, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And maybe even if you have listened, you'll enjoy it again. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today is, uh, well, we have quite a guest. He's an extraordinary writer and author. He is a professor of journalism at UC Berkeley. Uh, he's somebody I've known for quite a while, who I think whose writing is changing the world, and that is Michael Pollan. So, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm very grateful for your time. Thank you, Ethan. Yeah, we do go back, I guess, to when I was writing about medical marijuana. 
right? I think I interviewed you then. <laughs> That's exactly. I was going to bring that up, which is it was back in the spring of 97. Wow. And uh, I think you had just maybe, maybe around that time you had published the piece on poppies and opium at Harper's, which is right. part of the chapter of your new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants. And I had put together that ballot initiative in California on legalizing uh, medical marijuana. I hadn't drafted it. That had been a local activist, Dennis Rome. So you came to see me. We spent a couple of hours together in my office and we were beginning to plan out the next cycle. And I think since then we've crossed paths over the years. But let me open up by asking you, I mean, the next thing I saw you writing about drugs was the botany of desire, where yeah. you wrote about what apples, potatoes, tulips, tulips and marijuana. And cannabis. Yeah. Well, what I remembered about that piece, I remember sitting around everywhere after you did it, was that what you did was really, one, you raised the question, is this victory for Proposition 215, the Medical Marijuana Initiative in California 25 years ago, did it represent a tipping point or a beginning of a tipping point in ending the war on drugs? And yeah. the second key point you made there was that what it had really done was to open up a dialogue between the people in the government, between the cops and the growers and the docs and the patients and you name it. And and I just thought that in both those respects, it was prescient. But I'm curious now, when you look back on these last 25 years, I mean, marijuana has not been a focus of your writing in recent years. But what do you think about this evolution? I mean, what's, do you have concerns about it? Do you feel very good about it? I basically feel good about it. I think that what we learned from that episode was that a very important tool for changing attitudes toward drugs was, um, and this was your, your idea, I think, was to reframe marijuana as a medicine uh, rather than a kind of Cheech and Chong, you know, fun thing. And when the public began to see that it was helping people, and then it was AIDS patients, of mm -hmm. course, and some people with epilepsy, um, and these were mostly anecdotal stories about uh, how they had helped people, but that completely changed the public's attitude. The, the simple demonization of these substances became much harder when we began to think of them as medicines for some people. And I think it's that same game plan, and I, I don't use that word in a cynical way, it has really driven the, the shifts around psychedelics too. Uh, what's interesting is there was never as much science around cannabis as a medicine. Uh, it was really largely anecdotal. It was a citizen science kind of movement. Whereas the science around psychedelics has been, um, you know, more conventional, controlled, double-blind studies. Yeah, I mean, in a way, right? Because you also had marijuana was in the pharmacopoeia until the 20s or 30s. Oh, yeah, there was history. There were studies out there. There was the fact that Marinol, that synthetic version of marijuana, was already available. There were oncologists already saying they were using it. And in fact, you know, it was really a previous generation before me that helped shift opinion on medical marijuana. Because with ballot initiatives, you weren't really going to run a ballot initiative unless you went into it with already 55% or more public support. I think somewhat similarly with the psychedelic stuff, you know, those local initiatives that began to win in Denver and in Oakland and now the big state one in Oregon last year, I mean, those were doable because of the work of others. And when I look at the work of others, I give a huge amount of credit to Rick Doblin's organization, MAPS. Sure, MAPS, yeah. I give a lot of credit to the researchers, the Roland Griffiths and Bob Jesse's and the others. But your book had it changed your mind, I just think that had an explosive impact 
just personally, the number of people would come up to me and say, Ethan, I just read Michael Pollan's latest book. I mean, where can I get some mushrooms? I've never done them or I haven't done them in 30 or 40 years. So, I mean, what do you think about that? I, I really think that you've been this major catalytic writer about food, Omnivore's Dilemma, but that book was extraordinary in its impact. Well, I, you know, I do hear that a lot. And people such as the couple that started the Oregon Initiative, uh, you know, have told me that it was reading not that book, but the New Yorker piece that preceded the book that inspired them. And and it it's incredibly gratifying. I mean, people write things and nothing happens all the time <laughs> to have anything happen. But I also feel that I was amplifying the voices of the researchers because these were incredible um, findings. And I would interview the patients and tell their stories. And that's really what moved the needle. As with medical marijuana, hearing about individuals whose lives were transformed for the better, there's nothing more powerful than that. And of course, that's what happened in Oregon, right? I mean, they began that ballot initiative underwater. They were at 46%, I think. And they did have the resources that you didn't have back in the 90s. Um, they had a lot of advertising money. But what did they do with it? Well, they told the stories of cancer patients whose fear of death had been removed by uh, their use of, of psilocybin and picked up 10 points uh, in a, a very short amount of time. So the public is ready to hear these stories. I think the public is ahead of the politicians on drugs. And uh they know that the drug war has been a failure and they see the collateral damage and they know now that the lies they've been told about drugs are just that. And uh, they're much less likely to, to buy the propaganda. Mm -hmm. In the beginning of your new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, you write, my wager in writing this book is that the decline of the drug war with its brutally simplistic narratives about your brain on drugs has opened a space in which we can tell some other, much more interesting stories about our ancient relationship with the mind-altering plants and fungi with which nature has blessed us. And that opening to the book is actually a good description for why I'm doing this podcast now. It's the same thing. And we need this new conversation. Yes. I mean, I think just ending the drug war is not enough because these are powerful substances. They're going to be part of our lives. They're going to be accessible. We're going to have to talk to our children about them. Uh, and we have to learn how to live with them, which is, you know, not obvious. Yeah. Well, you know, I, so let me give you a little shit about something and see how you respond to it, right? Okay. You wrote an op-ed piece in the spring of 2019, I think, in the New York Times, right? And it was a reaction to Denver legalizing, uh, you know, plant medicines or psilocybin mushrooms. I can't remember if it was narrow or short. And you said, hold on here. You know, maybe the country isn't ready for this debate. And I was thinking, oh, well, Michael's just covering his ass because his book is having such a huge impact. The last thing he needs is to be identified <laughs> as a new Timothy Leary of psychedelics. But anyway, tell me what you were thinking then and what you're thinking now about this, because now you're talking about opening up the debate. Yeah. So um, at the time, I was strongly influenced by the scientists that I had been interviewing and that were really at the heart of my book. And they were all um, very nervous. Um, you know, this path had been laid out by Rick Doblin originally of, of FDA approval, right? We're going to go through the phase one, two, three of the trials. Then we're going to get FDA approval and then we'll reschedule psychedelics. And the fear then was that if this became a popular issue rather than this more or less hidden regulatory path, um, it would blow it. It would politicize psychedelics. And that I expected a backlash. I expected us to fall into the old culture war, drug war narrative. And that suddenly this research, which had not been controversial, 
would get to be controversial. So I was in effect being protective of this research, which I thought was so important and so promising that uh, I didn't want anything to get in the way. As it turned out, that process is going on. It hasn't been affected. For reasons I don't entirely understand, the Republicans have chosen not to fight this, uh, you know, this suing for peace in the drug war that's happening. I think they've decided it's a losing issue. Uh, and, and given that the, the, how, how the culture war is raging, it's very interesting they're leaving this one alone. And in fact, psychedelic research has, has friends on the right. Uh, Rick Perry, uh, the former um, energy secretary and governor of Texas, is a supporter of psychedelic medicine. Mm -hmm. Rebecca Mercer gave money to MAPS. And Steve Bannon says friendly things about it. Uh, so, as you know, and I evolved. I mean, what can I say? Um, <laughs> I, I still yeah. don't support the commercialization of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. I don't think that cannabis is the proper model. And cannabis, you know, where I live, you know, there are billboards on the Bay Bridge, you know, promising delivery of cannabis within two hours, if you call them, like, you know, by the time you get home in traffic, it'll be there. There'll be a guy at your, on a bicycle with your, with your cannabis. And um, that kind of active promotion of psychedelics is, uh, you know, I mean, maybe I'll be ready for that in a year too, but I, I'm not yet. Uh, and I, I think that decriminalization is very different. And I see all this capital moving into the psychedelic space, most of it for medical treatment. And I do believe there is a place uh, or there should be access for psychedelics for people who are not clinically, you know, mentally ill. Um, I think they have a lot to offer all of us. But I'd love to find a model that is well suited to psychedelics, to magic mushrooms, and not, uh, as many people in the cannabis world want to do, follow that path so that the Magic mushrooms are sold right next to the uh, to the cannabis, mm -hmm. you know, vape cartridges in the in the dispensaries. Um, that doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, I mean, you know, Michael, I'm actually fairly sympathetic to your viewpoint. I'm also wary of the kind of over-the-counter commercialization and advertising. I think with marijuana, we recognize that it was inevitable and there probably was no other better model and you just have to hope for good regulatory approaches at the state and ultimately the federal level. I mean, I do look at places like the Netherlands or Jamaica where they do seem to sell magic mushrooms in the same places that oftentimes cannabis is quasi-legally available and those don't seem seem to be an issue yet. But I agree, it has to be careful. And I don't want to see that that backlash either. I mean, that definitely scares me, that possibility. Right. We went through that backlash once, of course. Mm -hmm. And uh, it could happen again. Um, you know, this country's prone to moral panics around drugs. Yeah. And it has been for a very long time. What's happening with the truffles in Amsterdam, though, that's a, that's a pretty weak form of psilocybin. You have to... Hmm consume enough truffles to get a stomach ache for it to actually work. And, you know, some of these substances are, you know, LSD is obviously very powerful. And uh, I do think that we have to find, you know, the proper cultural container. I, I was very influenced by rereading Andrew Weil's book, uh, The Natural Mind. Mm -hmm. It's like 50 years old. It's a very wise book. And he talks a lot since he'd done all this research in South America of what we have to learn from indigenous cultures. 
about how to safely use these powerful psychedelics. Well, you know, I'll tell you, Michael, Andrew was my first guest. Oh, great. I did it in part because he has such a huge influence on me back in the 80s, reading The Natural Mind at the time. And then his other books, Chocolate to Morphine and The Marriage of the Sun and the Moon. I mean, the other thing, of course, is, you know, he goes from drug writing to writing about integrative medicine. And he he writes about coffee, for example, which we'll get into that shortly. And you also go, you know, you do the stuff on marijuana, but then body desire, gardening and this, and then you become you know, the world's leading writer about food stuff. But I wonder how you think about your back and forth in the the merging of these two issues. Yeah, well, for me, they're of a piece. I mean, you have to go back in time to the beginning of my writing, which was very much about, uh, you know, I began writing in the garden. I was very interested in the symbiotic relationship between us and plants and how plants have evolved to gratify our needs and desires. And that's a very successful strategy. Just look at the edible grasses, which now you know have this huge amount of territory we allot to them because we depend on them. For corn and rice, this has been a really winning strategy to hitch their wagon to ours. And so if you're interested in that, if that's the kind of trunk of my work, of the tree of my work, this interest in plants and people, ethnobotany, you might call it, um, one big branch off of that trunk is food and agriculture. And I spent a couple of years writing about that. And I still do from time to time. I'm still very interested in that. And that's kind of the most profound way we change nature um, is through our eating and, and, and what our agriculture does to the planet. Um, we change the land, we change the atmosphere, we change the composition of species. So it was kind of natural I would dig into that first and, and wrote three or four books about that. But another really interesting thing we use plants for is to change consciousness. And this turns out, as as Andy says in The Natural Mind, to be virtually universal. And so that's another interesting branch um, of our use of plants and their cleverness in uh, enlisting us in their, their mission to expand their habitat. They're also, you know, both things we ingest that changes us. And finally, they're both critically involved in health. Uh, physical health for the most part with food and mental health for the most part in drugs. But as we know, those lines even are not what you would think. And Andy's made a very strong case that the psychedelics can have you know, real physiological effects and heal physical ailments, not just mental ailments, and that there's not a real difference between the two at some level. I also like moving on as a writer at a certain point. I prefer to write as an amateur. And then I become an expert. (laughs) And that kind of fucks it up from a literary point of view. I mean, it's very gratifying as an advocate that, uh, you know, I learn about a subject, I publish a book about it, and then I have a platform to argue for the world I want to see. And that's great. But as a writer, I really prefer being at the beginning and being the idiot on page one who has a set of questions, but doesn't have his answers. Read the first page of any of my books and you'll see I really am very naive at the beginning. And what I like to do is dramatize the process of learning and what I have to do to learn, which includes not only talking to people and reading lots of books, but having experiences that are really relevant that teach us in a way that books can't teach us. And so, you know, when I was writing about the cattle industry, I bought a cow and followed it through the process for Omnivore's Dilemma. And as you know, when I wrote about psychedelics, I took a, you know, a menu of psychedelics because there's no substitute for personal experience. Um, and there's a perspective you have doing something for the first time that you'll never have again. So even though I'm a relatively green or young psychonaut, as Andy reminds me every time we're on a stage <laughs> together, 
And he, he lists the hundreds of experiences he's had. <laughs> right. I actually think there's a virtue in being a newbie, that I see things that you might not see on your hundredth trip, um, and that there's a quality of wonder. Not to mention the fact that the reader can identify more easily with someone doing something for the first time than for the hundredth time. Um, so there's a, there's a bit of narrative strategy involved, too. Right. One of the things I love, there was a piece in The Times uh, a year or two ago, and it had you having a lunch at your home. <laughs> and it was with Eilet Waldman, yeah. who had written a book on microdosing. In fact, and I think she actually interned at Drug Policy Alliance when she was in her 20s. And then the novelist, uh, T.C. Boyle, who I remember reading his wonderful book about growing marijuana and paranoia in Humboldt back in 84, Budding Prospects. But yes. then he wrote a, a very recent novel. About LSD. Yeah, Timothy Leary. Yeah, exactly. It's called Outside Looking In. And the, one of the comments they quote you saying there is your debate about what's going on in American culture with, with Ayelet and T.C. Boyle. And you say, I think part of what's going on is it's a reaction or, or it's linked to the growing anxiety in American society. You know, and not, not just Trumpism, but a whole range of other things. Does that still feel true to you? That, or were you just kind of speculating with them when you said that? I don't remember saying that. I mean, that it was the anxiety that was leading to interest in psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I see it more as uh, a dissatisfaction with the tools we have to deal with mental illness and anxiety and depression. And the, you know, the fact that SSRIs are increasingly um, not working as well as they once did, and people really don't like taking them. I see it being driven by like a willingness to do something really outside of the box that people feel. You know, the underground use of psychedelics is booming also. And I think people are looking for help uh, and that people are in a very stressed state. It has partly to do with our politics. It has partly to do with climate change. And the pandemic has, has only intensified this. And many people are looking for healing. And, uh, and here are psychedelics that offer some relief, but a very different kind of relief in that this is not self-medication in the sense of using an opiate or alcohol to kind of dull your senses. As you know, psychedelic experience is really hard work, and it's an attempt mm -hmm. to go inside, which can be a very scary place to go. But people are looking for something more radical, something that, in the, in the true sense of the word, that will deal with the roots of their problem. It's depression, it's anxiety, it's just this sense that we're in a very, very difficult time. And the future, you know, has not looked this dark uh, in my lifetime. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the questions being raised, not just about the environmental crisis, but about our political system. And well, whether our political system can cope with the environmental crisis, whether our political system can survive. And I think all these things make the potential of psychedelic healing very attractive to people. And they're, they're willing to take a chance, right? They're willing to do something mm -hmm. that may be way out of their uh, comfort zone. I am really surprised at the people, I mean, many people come to me now like looking for psychedelic therapy and we should tell your listeners, please don't come to me for this. <laughs> I can't make referrals. It's just too dangerous for everybody. Um, find your own guide. But I'm amazed at who comes to me. They're just not the people you would think. They're people in very prominent positions, people who look like they've got everything worked out in their lives. And they're willing to roll the dice and uh, do something they never would have considered a few years ago. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When your child fights sleep, it can feel like a battle you'll never win. Imagine a bedtime routine you all look forward to, where you cuddle in and let the stress of the day melt away. Welcome to Sleep Tight Stories, a calming weekly podcast that brings bedtime stories, cuddles, and comfort to families worldwide. The stories are quirky, relatable, and spark wonder without overstimulation, so listeners can fall asleep and stay asleep. Each episode is narrated by me, Cheryl McLeod, a second grade teacher, and written by my husband, Clark, an eternal second grader at heart. Tune in tonight and bond over a story before drifting off to sleep. Make bedtime the sweetest part of your day. Sleep Tight Stories. Listen to Sleep Tight Stories on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress... They gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. I have to say, reading your chapter on mescaline in the current book was fascinating for me. First of all, I mean, I, I must confess I've only done mescaline, I think, once back, you know, 25, 30 years ago. I did synthetic mescaline, and I, didn't, I did not appreciate uh, the differences that you describe in your latest book between mescaline and uh, LSD and psilocybin. And then you also quote uh, Sasha Alexander Shulgin. Uh, you know, the brilliant backyard chemist who actually I was quite friendly with and we 
would visit at his home Lafayette, in Lafayette, California, yeah. oftentimes, and who was generous with me in uh, having me uh, experiment. Um, but he calls mescaline the queen yeah. of the psychedelics. And you had, I think, a, a rabbi psychedelics friend who said the same thing. Yeah, the king of the materials. The king of the materials. So is your experience, would you, would you agree with that description? Yeah, I mean, I had a really interesting... Uh, and positive experience with mescaline, uh, I had a more profound one with psilocybin. And given the choice, would I do mescaline again? I guess I would. I, I mean, I really liked this quality of, you know, the way it immerses you in the here and now. Um, mm -hmm. It's very different than the psychedelics that at high dose take you somewhere else, take you to another world, another dimension. I was just more here than I'd ever been and more absorbed in what was right in front of me. And in a way, it was the perfect drug for the pandemic, you know, where we were kind of claustrophobic, we were stuck in place. It felt like our worlds had shrunk down, it still feels that way. And here was this drug that made what you had, the room you were in, the life you were leading, so interesting and so nuanced and so rich with possibility and insight that you were completely content with your little nutshell. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a very interesting experience. I think Huxley's account, and, and you know, these accounts influence us, you know, they're no innocent psychedelic experiences, right? They're very much constructed by our expectations as Timothy Leary understood. But Huxley in The Doors of Perception, I, a lot of what I felt chimed with what he said, which was that he felt like the, the reducing valve of consciousness. The fact that our consciousness is trying to reduce the amount of information coming in because it, it threatens to overwhelm us and it's more than we need for the business of living and survival. But there's so much more out there. There's so much more sensory information than we're taking in. Uh, that felt really right to me. And, and Shulgin says this too. He said he saw colors or nuances of colors that he didn't know existed. And it is that kind of child mind, which is taking in information from in all directions, is not focused. It's the opposite of caffeine. I think psychedelics and caffeine are on two ends of a spectrum where caffeine helps you focus the lens where you want, which is very powerful for getting work done, and which is why it suits capitalism so well. Psychedelics, you're bringing in information from all these you know, corners of the room and doesn't necessarily encourage you to focus, but can be incredibly enriching to see what's out there. So it was interesting. I didn't have I, I, that experience of ego dissolution. I didn't have hallucinations with the one exception of, there were a couple moments where I, I was a little bit overwhelmed by how much information was coming in. And I closed my eyes to meditate, but the, the me that was meditating was somebody else. Um, and this happened a couple of times. I was like, who is this Latin American woman who's in my head meditating? <laughs> Uh -huh. I know that sounds crazy, but um, but in general, it wasn't about hallucination. It was about perception, and it was about um, taking in this information. The only negative uh, experience I felt, besides this brief period of being overwhelmed by, as, as I quote this poet, uh, the immensity of existence. I mean, I was really hit by that a couple times at the peak. The only negative was it went on so long. I mean, it's mm -hmm. like 14 hours, and I was done with the mescaline before it was done with me. Um, I wanted to just have dinner and go to bed, but mm -hmm. right. it wasn't going to happen. Well, I guess that's why they're not really using mescaline or LSD in research, in research trials, right? Yes. It, it means two shifts for your two guides, right? Your two therapists. Exactly, which can be kind of expensive. But it does seem like it's worth investigating or maybe working on the molecule, as, as Sasha Shulgin did so 
brilliantly because it has some of, of MDMA's qualities. You can feel very connected to somebody else on it and you can hold a conversation. And it seems to me it could be useful in a group therapy context, um, which might justify all the hours of uh, therapist time. Mm -hmm. And there mm -hmm. is a company that wants to work with it. Uh, Journey Colab wants to use mescaline to work on alcoholism. And, you know, uh, the Native Americans have used mescaline in the form of peyote with great mm -hmm. success in a group setting and working often on alcoholism. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I reread uh, before uh, talking with you now another essay you wrote that I just thought was wonderful. And it was about the challenges of writing about this, Oh yeah. you know, about putting into language. And, and I remember at, at one point, you know, you uh, you had done 5-MeO-DMT, the toad trip, the Sonoran toad where you squeeze the glands and you get 5-MeO-DMT. And you talked about the role of metaphors or rocket and the Big Bang. Yeah. Or at another point, I think in the most recent book, you're talking about comparing LSD and psilocybin to kind of a top-down approach and mescaline almost a bottom-up one. And I realized that as a writer, and as a brilliant writer, you have the luxury of looking at your words and crafting them, whereas I'm interviewing in this moment, you don't have that luxury of doing it. Did you feel that when you were writing this most recent book and talking about your mescaline experience that the words or the ways of writing flowed more naturally than it had a few years ago, just as you've through it more? Yeah, I think I found a way to write about psychedelic experience for me. And that was hard to do. When I, when I first approached the whole issue, and I knew that there was going to be a chapter in How to Change Your Mind, where I'd have to describe my trips. And I was very nervous about it, because I've read a lot of, you know, really shitty trip reports, we all have. And, uh, and, you know, it's like telling people your dreams, you know, the chances are you'll bore them to tears. So I approached that as a very, uh, you know, nervous making part of the writing. Um, in the event, it was actually great fun, much more fun than I thought. Uh, and as a writer, it was some of the, the most fun I've had. And, and writing about this mescaline trip too was really fun. And what unlocked it for me was understanding that I was writing for people who probably hadn't had this experience, many of my readers. And I needed to address them directly about what I imagined they were thinking about what I just said. So in other words, I, I go into the trip and I describe it for a certain amount of time. But when I reach a, a moment of incredulousness in my own mind, like there was a Latin American woman meditating in my head, I stopped and talked to the reader and said, I know how crazy this sounds. Or yes, I know that love is the most important thing in the world. I know that that's a hallmark sentiment, but remember it's also profound. It can be both. And so this direct address to the reader gave me the license to go where I had to go. And I, mm -hmm. I felt like I wouldn't lose that reader by taking account of their skepticism or their wrinkled brow or whatever it was. Right, so right. once I kind of found that, that little formula, I could let go. I could totally cut loose. And, you know, for a journalist who's normally writing things that have to stand up to fact-checking, right? In that small box of checkable facts, when there's a lot of other interesting things that you can't quite pin down. Here, I'm, I'm transcribing the contents of my mind. There's no fact checking, right? right. <laughs> I am it. I'm the expert on this story. And I imagine it's how novelists feel because they're, they're basically, I, as I imagine, I'm, I don't write fiction, but they're telling themselves a story or they're enacting a dialogue in their head and writing it down. And there's enormous freedom in that. And it was, it was great pleasure. So I was very happy to write a book where I would get to describe another trip. 
You know, I also found sometimes, like when I smoke a little marijuana, if it's strong marijuana, I'll get into this thinking, and I'll go, oh my God, great thoughts, great thoughts. Yeah. But so often, later in the day, afterwards, the next day, they just seem like fluff, you know? Yeah. Whereas I found that when I've done, this has happened on mushrooms, this has happened on ayahuasca, that actually, and especially if I don't get high at the end of the trip, that my thoughts can be very clear later that day or even the next week. And easy to remember. Easy to remember and actually have, there are insights I had on influence of mushrooms 20, 30, 40 years ago that still have validity in my life today. Yeah. And so I think that must be a benefit, actually. You had, I think, the same experience. Oh, yeah. I know I did. There are insights I had, and you can, you know, you can also call them banal, uh, insights around love and connectedness, mm -hmm. but they're real. You know, the sense of interconnectedness people feel on psychedelics. The illusion is the idea of separateness, right? Mm -hmm. And so there is a, a, a veracity to some of this, these ideas we acquire. But also think of the people using psychedelics to quit smoking, and they come to the profound conclusion that smoking is stupid and it's killing them. They knew that at one level, but there is a, a sturdiness to the insight on psychedelics. It's, it's what James called the noetic quality, right? That this is not just an opinion, this is a revealed truth. And some of the truths are really important. Um, and they have that etched in stone, brought down from the mountain quality. And I think that's one of the keys to the success of psychedelics and helping people change bad habits, mm -hmm. such as addiction, is that whatever insights they come to, either directed toward them by their therapists or on their own, those insights are sturdier than the insights we have in everyday life. Mm -hmm. Well, now let's talk about uh, the powerful role of set and setting. And one of the big points you make in the mescaline chapter, and I think it's in your other book as well, is for a lot of these drugs, there's the synthetic version, right? In this case, mescaline, or or you can have that with psilocybin as well. And then there's the natural plant version, or the one that comes from the toad, um, in the case of 5-MeO-DMT, right? And actually, by chance, I met this guy last week, a Mexican guy named Mario Garnier, who is like the latest, you know, major advocate for the toad medicine. He actually comes from the Sonora area. And when he's asked, there's a debate, synthetic versus the toad. And the way he resolves it is to say they're just different. Mm -hmm. They're just different, right? And I think he privately actually believes the real stuff is better, but he frames it that way. I remember Sasha Shulgin, he was a bit contemptuous. He said, use the synthetic. It's the same drug. And in fact, if anything, it's a little cleaner, so you're less likely to get sick. Now, you talk in the book about your own experience with a synthetic and then using, I think, the uh, the mescaline that comes from the San Pedro yeah. plant, I think, in the second case. The first one's a very high dose. The one was a little, kind of a lower dose. Um, but you also talk about how our view of this is so alien to people in the Native American church or indigenous peoples for whom the drug, quote unquote, is almost secondary to the ritualistic context. Yes. And they're very devoted to their cactus and they're not interested in synthetic mescaline and they're not interested in San Pedro. And in fact, they're not even interested in peyote that's been grown, cultivated. They think that's not the same either, that it has to be wild. And there may be some truth to that. I don't know. We haven't grown a lot of peyote, but we're going to try and see what happens. But it may be like hydroponic lettuce, you know? <laughs> it just may be weak. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it depends on the drug. I think that synthetics are often cleaner and there's less gastrointestinal upset. There are other alkaloids we know that are active um, in the same way cannabis ha is not just THC. It has other things going on and, and maybe other things we haven't yet found. Same with the natural forms of most of these drugs. 
in the case of ergot, you would not want to eat the natural form. <laughs> That's, you know, you could get gangrene and insanity. I mean, bad things happen. And ergot, just say to our listeners, is the connection with LSD, right? Yeah, it's the, it's the fungus uh, from which LSD is derived and, and it has a, a dark history in European culture of uh, leading to all sorts of problems when people ingested it on uh, bad grain. Another way to look at this is um, look at coca versus cocaine. You know, Andy and Wade Davis have written eloquently about how coca leaves, which are used like caffeine is in our culture in South America, uh, has a lot of positive attributes and very few negative attributes. And it is the refinement into cocaine where you end up with a powerful drug that people can get into trouble with. And ditto, you know, opium poppies, uh, poppy tea, is a, or even opium compared to the powerful synthetics like fentanyl. And uh, so it depends. I mean, if you're talking about things of equal strength, that's one argument. If you're talking about the fact that you're refining something from nature and making it orders of magnitude more intense, that's another story. Um, I think we can get hung up, though, on, on romanticizing things in their natural form. Mm -hmm. But there are some protections in having them in their natural form, too, which is that they're often weaker and, you know, likely to be less overwhelming. Yeah. Well, you know, the other thing I like about your writing, and especially in the most recent book, is the way you throw things into historical context. And I'm reading through it, and I'm saying to myself, I wonder if he's going to mention Chivalbush. I wonder if he's going to mention Chivalbush. <laughs> and there, there's Wolfgang Chivalbush, uh, you know, who wrote- Two or three times. He wrote this book, Taste of Paradise, a couple decades ago- I love that About book. spices, stimulants, and intoxicants. And he points out how in Europe, they didn't have coffee or tea until the 1600s. They didn't have tobacco, I don't think, till the 15, 1600s, right? That actually spices played a role almost like inebriants did. They had yeah. alcohol, and they didn't even have hard liquor, right? They had low-potency alcohol. So spices played that. Yeah, yeah, they had a hard cider and things like that. Yeah, I forget when distillation comes in, but that's pretty late too. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, spices are the kind of forerunners of drugs. Um, and you know, I mean, if you eat chili peppers, right? Or black pepper, lots of black pepper, mm -hmm. you feel flushed and you feel, it changes consciousness. I mean, there are many foods that change consciousness. Sugar, just watch kids with sugar, that's their drug. It's a powerful effect. But I love that Chivalbush book. And I, I remember reading it back in the 80s and thinking, wow, this is a fascinating area. And, and that was one of my inspirations to write about drugs. The other is um, a book I wonder if you know by, uh, by Lenson called On Drugs. I do know it. I think that's just a brilliant book that no one's heard of about drugs. And um, he's very good at looking at the cultural and economic um, identity of different drugs. You know, that cocaine is a consumerist drug, right? You always want more. It drives that consumerist economy. And other drugs make you very content with what you have in front of you, cannabis. Mm -hmm. And then he had a wonderful chapter on LSD and how it was orientalized by Timothy Leary. And it's really true, you realize. It's, it's so much of, you know, he, he used the Tibetan Book of the Dead as the frame for the experience. And it's really just about how constructed these drug experiences are, but yet they do have qualities that push them in one direction or another. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Parents, if you've ever experienced bedtime battles with the kids, I'm going to let you into a little secret. I'm Abby, a mother of two, and I had these battles myself. Endless excuses, delay tactics, and many tears and tantrums. But I've created a solution. The perfect kids podcast that makes bedtime a dream. It's called Koala Moon and it's hosted by me, Abby. With over 300 episodes packed with original stories and sleep meditations, Koala Moon makes bedtimes easy and enjoyable. Episodes start out engaging and really rather magical, but as they progress, they gently slow to a calm and relaxing pace to have your little ones out like a light. Since launching in 2022, Koala Moon has helped with over 20 million nights sleep and received over 6,000 five-star reviews. Win back your evenings. Listen to Koala Moon now on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, ready to discover a new educational and interactive podcast for kids? Join Stories for Kids by Lingo Kids, where episodes are packed with fun activities. Right, Elliot? Oh, yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Cowie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiment and Billy made raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on StoryButton, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. also write me about the ways in which society is transformed. I mean, alcohol is the far and away the most widely consumed drug in revolutionary era, early 19th century America, other parts of the world. Um, but then there's the transition here and in other countries, uh, United Kingdom, elsewhere, and much of the Western world, to coffee. And that in an increasingly industrialized world, that is more appropriate. I love the point you make that it can't be just coincidence that both the emergence of coffee and the emergence of the minute hand yeah. on the clock yeah. happen around the same time. Yeah, well, you know, what's really interesting about the arrival of caffeine, coffee and tea and chocolate in Europe, those three substances arrive in the same decade in England, uh, which makes that a, a really a red letter decade, as far as I'm concerned. But we see a before and after of the introduction of a, of a powerful drug because the, the older drugs like alcohol, cannabis, opium, they've been around, you know, since prehistory, probably. So we don't know what a world without them was really like, but we see the arrival at a moment in time of caffeine and it changes things in a profound way. And people at the time noticed they're writing about this new sober and civil drink and that, you know, clerks in offices are no longer drunk and they're doing a better job and 
Um, and it was immediately grasped that this drug was well-suited for mental work. In a way, alcohol wasn't, and was well-suited for operating machinery. So the, the Industrial Revolution you know, gets a big push from the arrival of caffeine. It creates the kind of worker that you want. And you know, before that, people were doing physical work outdoors, and it didn't matter if you were buzzed. And people were buzzed because they were drinking you know, at breakfast because alcohol was safer than water. And that's why you even gave alcohol to your kids um, in the form of hard cider. I mean, not strong forms of alcohol, but, but everybody got alcohol. Once you start doing work that involves heavy machinery and especially when you need a night shift, you know, because these machines are so expensive and you want to run them all night, caffeine is what allows us to stay up late. Caffeine disconnects us from uh, natural time, the time of the sun. Used to be you would work from dawn till dusk with caffeine and electric light and or gas light and uh, a few other things like coal, you could have a night shift and an overnight shift. And it had a profound effect on um, creating a human being, a human body that could work in the, in the context of a mill mm -hmm. uh, or a, another kind of technological setup. Um, so I think it had a big effect. And if you want an example of what's going on with capitalism and caffeine, just look at the coffee break and think about that. You know, your employer gives you a drug, coffee or tea, and then uh, paid time in which to enjoy it. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Why is your employer doing that? Not to be nice. They're doing it because they know that you, you will work better and harder and more efficiently. Yeah. So part of what you do is you provide this broad historical perspective, and you also raise concerns about the future. You point out that with climate change, many of the coffee-growing regions yeah. may be hurt the most. You know, you point out in another place that with, you know, we've typically gotten our opioids from the opium plant, morphine, heroin, et cetera, but now we see fentanyl emerging, or we see other either semi or total synthetics that may be displacing this. We now see a for-profit psychedelics world that knows that part of its opportunity to make money is by designing slight variations on the natural substances which they can't patent. And so, I mean, any thoughts about where we're going in terms of our psychoactive drug use of the future? Well, there's a few different futures out there, and I, I don't know which one is going to predominate, but I think they're going to be multiple. I mean, I, there is an, a kind of enclosure movement in the corporate world around psychedelics, an attempt to patent as much as possible. Compass Pathways is most notorious for wanting to patent psilocybin, and you can't exactly, but they patent a one crystalline form of it, and whether that's a meaningful patent or not remains to be seen. But, you know, psilocybin will continue to grow in cow patties. It will continue to grow in closets and in gardens. And it, I think it'll be hard to control. There will be the, you know, the natural form, the mushroom form that will still be out there. And, the, and, and underground therapy won't go away. I, I think it'll actually get even more successful. There was a period where the underground therapists were worried they were going to be written out of psychedelic medicine, but they're no longer worried about that because the demand is going to be so great. And they have access to the drug and they, they're the ones with a lot of experience too in administering it. And then there's going to be this religious path. I'm very interested to see these new churches or, you know, that use uh, a psychedelic as a sacrament. I mean, already we have three of them. There's two ayahuasca churches that have the legal right to use ayahuasca. And then there's the Native American church, which has the legal right to use peyote. But there will be a church of psilocybin and a church of LSD. And I think that it's going to be very hard for the Supreme Court to deny that they are either religions or that this is their sacrament and that the jurisprudence around religious freedom has gotten so crazily expansive 
that I think is going to be like an exploding cigar when it gets to Samuel Alito's desk, <laughs> one of these churches. And yeah. um, we'll see. I mean, you know, they don't always feel they have to be consistent. No, they don't. And it was the same. I mean, I remember Justice Scalia, you mentioned, right, yeah. who shot down the Native American church's right to use peyote. And fortunately, Congress overturned them. But Scalia was not consistently bad on all drug issues. No. But he may have been somebody who just kind of saw America as a Christian nation or Judeo-Christian nation as fundamental to his conception and that therefore allowing something like this might threaten it. But how outrageous. I mean, given the fact that white people came to this country seeking religious freedom, the free exercise of religion, and they put it in the First Amendment. And here are the people who pre-existed us using their sacrament and being told by the Supreme Court of the United States that the drug war is more important than your religious uh, practice. Yeah, I mean, exactly, it was just exactly. one of the most outrageous decisions. And I'm, I'm really glad it was undone. So, you know, you get into the Native American church. One of the interesting things, well, first of all, you make the point that if people, white people and all others who are not part of the Native American church are going to use mescaline, don't get it from peyote, get it from the synthetic or else get it from the San Pedro plant, which grows in abundance and is very hardy, right? But you also interestingly pointed out that Native Americans did not actually use this until 100 years or so ago, whereas the traditional use went back hundreds, if not thousands of years. 6,000 years. 6,000 among the Huichol in Mexico and others as well. Yeah. The story of the Native American church and how it was created and what it did for Native Americans is, to me, one of the more moving stories I've, I've written about. Um, it is true that it wasn't until the 1880s, at least that white people noticed it, that they were using peyote in a ceremonial way. Um, it was a revival of a practice um, that had been continuous in Mexico. And remember, the distinction between Texas and Mexico is fairly recent, and peyote grows uh, on both sides of the Rio Grande in a strip there. And um, there may have been um, uh, Native Americans in Tex South Texas who used it continually, but for most Native Americans, it was really when they were forced onto reservations in Oklahoma and brought into close contact with one another that this practice spread um, and became a, really an intertribal um, practice and did a lot to knit different Indian groups together. Because um, remember, before we got here, they weren't Native Americans. <laughs> Uh, in, 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 in both senses, there was no America, but also they were separate nations and many of them hated each other. They were agrarian people and there were nomads and they had many different lifestyles. And, and uh, so it's, it's only us that have forced them to be lumped together. And the Native American church, when that phrase is invented, is the first time the phrase Native American is used. And that doesn't happen until 1918. But anyway, at a, at a moment of maximum trauma, for American Indians in the 1880s. This is after the ghost dance has been suppressed violently. There's a massacre at Wounded Knee. This is after um, we've begun taking Indian children from their parents, cutting off their hair, putting them in boarding schools, uh, where the avowed aim was to, and this is a quote, to kill the Indian and save the man. It was the policy of the US government to destroy Indian culture. Um, many of their religious practices were outlawed uh, the Sundance, for example. And and by the way, we're outlawed until the Carter administration. So this is a kind of horrible episode. And um, the Native Americans found that peyote used in ceremony was um, helped accommodate them to their new lives um, and helped heal them from things like alcohol, which don't really become a problem until reservation life. And so you know, this is a traumatized people and they found relief in peyote and continue to. 
the peyoteism is is now you know there are two hundred fifty thousand members at least in the Native American Church in in uh, I don't know how many different tribes but dozens and dozens of tribes so it's a very hopeful story and it's a story from which we we stand to learn a lot. Well, in closing, let me just say you uh, you know when I think about the future of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy and whether health insurance will pay for it, reading in your book that the Indian Health yes. Services pays for peyote sessions. I mean, what a great you know precedent for covering the cost of psychedelic <laughs> assisted therapy. So listen, Michael, thank you so much for joining me. It's great to catch up. I love your new book. Um, do you have any plans for what the next book is? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. I'm, 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 I'm working on that. I've been too busy with this one. Okay. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Ethan. Yes, you too, Michael. Thanks very much. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Edelman. It's produced by Katja Kumkova and Ben Kiebrick. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky for Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick for iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Edelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian. And a special thanks to Abhivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beatty. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, or ideas, please leave us a message at 833-779-2460. That's 1-833-PSYCHO-0. You can also email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. And if you couldn't keep track of all this, find the information in the show notes.